Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello, Aquest Podcast listeners. It's March 2020 and the coronavirus has arrived. I imagine you guys are listening to this lying in bed, laptop to hand, cup of tea, woolly pajamas and frilly socks as you work from home for another day as we try and cope with the outcome of the coronavirus. If you're on the opposite side of the house, you're probably thinking, I'm glad that our BCP was tested and that everything is working as it should in this disaster scenario. If you're on the upside and you're frantically trying to connect to the internet or check whether colleagues have connectivity and desperately worrying about whether the BCP exists or how it's performing, well, you're welcome too. And the reason I mention BCP particularly is because business continuity planning is one of the issues I discussed with my guest co-host for this podcast, who is James Newman from Perform, which is a due diligence services firm based in London. Now, James has a wealth of experience performing due diligence on advisors and fund managers and investment managers, particularly on behalf of investors and fund management companies. So I was delighted to be able to tap into his knowledge and get some insights on what he's seeing as best practices, particularly for fund management companies as they perform due diligence on delegates, especially delegate investment managers. Sit back, enjoy the podcast, and we'll catch you on the other side. In this episode, we're going to focus on the sometimes thorny topic of due diligence of delegates by fund management companies. Particularly interested to get some insights on what best practices are and what industry experts are seeing fund management companies do to tackle how they onboard and then oversee delegates on an ongoing basis. To do that, I'm delighted to be joined by my guest co-host of this episode, who is James Newman, co-head of a company called Perform, who do due diligence services. Have I got that name right, James? Perform? Preform? No, that's correct. Perform. Perform. Good. I often get asked, is it AQuest or AQuest? And it's AQuest, so I'm glad <laughs> I got Perform. So tell us a little bit about yourself, James. So my, my background is 20 years in financial services. The first 10 of those was in uh, working for a fund of hedge funds as finance director, compliance director, and then latterly then with that group as the head of operational due diligence. And that predated a lot of the issues that occurred during the financial crisis. Um, and I guess one of, one, of the, one of the key moments for me there was preventing, sort of catching, getting involved in the Madoff debacle back in, you know, 08, 09. And then from that point onwards, I moved to Barclays Wealth where I headed up with the global head of operational due diligence for Barclays Wealth. And what was quite unique about that experience for me was that I covered in the end, by the end of my tenure there, all shades and all colors and all types of funds. So all the way through the alternatives, hedge funds, private markets, real estate, and then into long only operational due diligence as well. So every sort of shade, every sort of color. So extremely interesting time. And, and using that experience that I have and observation and insight that I've had over those years and now you know, using that for the, for the benefit of our clients. And although operational due diligence is quite a, a niche area, there is a community in particularly in, in London and internationally of professionals who focus on this area. So it is quite specialized. I know that there is the ODD group that I spoke with a little bit last year. So it's quite an active community and quite an expert community in this area. Yeah, no, I think that, that is fair. 
it is, it is quite a specialist area. There are there are groups, internal groups, that are providing operational due diligence uh, reviews for their own, you know, for their own for the banks and family offices and for the fund, the hedge funds. And there are there are of course consultants as well that are providing operational due diligence services. But yeah, I mean, we've always found that as a, as a community and as a group that we've very much shared our experiences, the lessons learned throughout the last sort of 10 years in order to improve our, our own operational risk reviews. Great. And, and let me just explain the context here for, for the podcast, because I'm particularly interested in picking your brains on this. So obviously, Irish authorised fund management companies, no more than any other EU authorised mancos, often delegate. And where they do, there's basically a requirement to do due diligence before you make the appointment and then on an ongoing basis, post-appointment, so that you're closely overseeing your delegates on a day-to-day basis. In Ireland, we have a set of rules and guidance for fund management companies called CP86. And the regulator here is actively reviewing how firms are complying with the guidance and the rules of, of that uh, piece. As part of that, they are very interested in the investment management and fund risk management roles and how the fund management company and those people performing those roles are overseeing delegates, how they're doing their due diligence and making sure that they're happy to proceed with an appointment and then keeping on top of that appointment on an ongoing basis. So I was kind of interested in getting some insight from yourself, James, on the, the best practices you would see amongst bancos where they, for example, appointing, I guess in most instances, it's a, an investment manager, distributor, and fund administrator. What, what are the basics of the due diligence process? Well, how does that something like that kick off? Is it is it always with a checklist? Uh, how is the checklist created? What are the key areas that firms are looking at at the moment, especially? What we've, what we've applied is the the best practices that I've sought over over the years, which is really drawing in from a number of sources. The first is regulatory requirements. So there are certain regulatory aspects that the, in the case of the investment manager, should be performing. So that could be with respect to the usage rules, investment concentration, and other investment restrictions. Or it could be more about where the prospectus themselves is applied to certain rules uh, and requirements. And then what we're doing from there is then applying that as a as a signal as a lead for what we should be looking at and what we're really looking at from from the regulatory perspective is is the investment manager do they have suitable governance oversight uh, controls people in order to execute on their responsibilities and then secondly are they are they continuing to do that on on an ongoing basis so we have that regulatory feed and then secondly we have just market and best practices so everything that myself we mentioned peers community or operational due diligence experts bringing information about cybersecurity, best practices around mitigating fraud, key person risk, all those sorts of things. But there isn't necessarily a regulatory rule, but using best practices in order to to have a standard for which to measure investment managers. And presumably that best practices piece where you're bringing in your experiences and those of your peers, it's probably the most dynamic part of your, your initial kickoff due diligence piece. It's the bit that changes probably from firm to firm as you learn more more. Yes, I think that's, that's, a fair, that's a fair comment. You cannot beat experience. Every opera, every organization is different. Every COO is different. And also people's experience and history themselves influences the way that they approach certain 
development aspect. So, you know, if a COO has been on the uh, receiving end of a cyber attack, you can bet that uh, several years ago, you can bet that that COO is actually really on top of cyber, cyber security, whereas potentially another COO who hasn't yet experienced that doesn't necessarily have such a focus on that. So, you know, there's the human side of it that we're all influenced on, on by that. And through the, you know, north of 300 reviews that, I, that I've undertaken, uh, you get to see, you know, every, every which way to slice um, the, uh, the reviews and the oversight of operational risk. And what's the, what's the last sort of item that's been added to that list? Well, I, I, I guess the, the really hot one at the moment, of course, is what's unfortunately happening with coronavirus at the moment. And that's really focusing around two areas, in my opinion. One is there's clearly the business continuity risks and uh, ensuring that operations continue with largely being uninterrupted. And, and that really then goes back through to the, the policies in place, the frequency of testing those policies historically, and also the, the ability to execute that plan. So with that actually happening sort of as we speak right now, I think also secondly, one which, which, one which isn't really at top of or people really thinking about right now, but I think will come back into play, is liquidity risk. So we are very much aware that um, from my experience over the years that where, where there is a sudden market disruption um, and indeed in many case losses, there can be very quick knee-jerk reactions from allocators um, in putting a lot of stress on funds by looking to, to redeem. So I, I, you know, these are, I think what one thing that a, a, a manco and an AFIM as well as an allocator needs to be is alive to what's happening to the environment around them because that will in itself apply certain pressures that didn't exist. So six to nine months ago, coronavirus, um, liquidity risk um, just wasn't there, right? The, the economy is still doing well, global economy is still doing well, and everyone is, is in a relatively upbeat sort of mood. So therefore, you, 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 know, you have your checklist that you need to undertake, but when certain things change, you have to be reactive to that. And indeed, when it comes to monitoring, typically you'll look at sort of an annual cycle as a, as a general rule of thumb, as a, as a you know, just a period in which to, to go back and review managers. But actually, when this sort of circumstances are happening, when things change, you need to be able to have somebody um, and a function, whether you're an ATEM or a manager or an allocator, to be able to really get on top of it straight away. Yeah, and I guess if you take something like BCP, the regulator has been on for a long time about, you know, test your BCP, what happens when things go wrong. And if you are a firm and you're investing in that, the time and the effort, and when it comes to now, when you have to actually push the button and deploy it, kind of from a regulator's perspective, justifies why they would have pushed firms to be, be on top of BCP. So hopefully they're not getting caught out that, that they are in a position where they have a plan and now it's execution rather than what you really don't want to see as a regulator or anybody else is that it's only now that you start to think about can we connect to our network from home and uh, what happens if we can't all appear at the office that kind of thing so it kind of it kind of yeah. uh, proves the case absolutely and i think well you know one one of the areas that we really do focus in on is the actual frequency of testing and fallover of testing as well so you know there's a big difference between having uh, one or two individuals in the firm work from home and test the system that's very 
very different to having the whole firm logging on at the same time and testing the system. So that's what we'd call a, a complete, you know, fallover that needs to be switched on and tested. And as you, as you can imagine, Danny, when we, you know when we're speaking to COOs, um, you know there, there is a there's a there's a big variation in some which immediately understand and um, are actively um, testing their plans. Um, there are others, unfortunately, which I think have a you know a kind of um, ready to go um, business continuity plan on paper, but that's not actually been tested to to any large extent. And I think unfortunately it's going to be those managers right now which are already feeling the heat and finding it very you know very difficult to continue to operate in the current environment. I think that's that's right, and I think it's across the board. You will have whenever it comes to having a policy or a procedure on something, some firms will will kind of put the brain power in to develop something that works for their firm, and some firms will take what an advisor has given them as a template, sign the bottom of it, and now they've ticked the box. And I think where that catches up with you is where you have to actually deploy something. And of course, again, as a regulator, what you want to see is not only that the rule has been complied with, but that firms have actually done that process, put the brain power into it, thought about how it works for their firm. And if they tweak the guidance and do something slightly different than maybe the regulator suggested, that's okay and acceptable where where the, where the firm has designed something that's sensible and, and works for them. But I guess when you're doing due diligence and, and this kind of process, James, there must be a lot of different departments that feed into something like this. So how how is that piece managed if you want to do a good due diligence process that's looking at operational risk, investment risk, or investment processes, governance liquidity management do you have one sort of center point that that leads the due diligence and and takes um, sort of input from the various departments or does everybody go and do their own process how does that tend to work one way I'd like to answer that question is is within sort of AFIM and and Manco perspective because I think what we've found with working with with our clients who are in that particular bucket you know they very much have their own internal compliance teams they have their internal risk teams portfolio risk management oversight teams that they're performing and and really what they're looking to do is to bring together all in all an operational non-investment operational risk review such that it can be available for the conducting officer or, or, or the uh, responsible person to be able to sign off in a fashion where they are they understanding the risk that they've had expertise in delivering that information and what we're looking to achieve is to really to, to sort of co-source that activity. You know, I think on the one hand, you can recruit operational due diligence experts in-house to provide those services. But I think really the, the most applicable, in my experience at least, what works is to co-source the activity and effectively leverage a qualified, you know, third party to sort of collect, organize and manage and bring all that operational performance uh, information together such that the the the, dele- the, uh, the manco or the conducting officer, the ASM who is responsible and indeed cannot delegate that re- 
responsibility away, but they have the best available information, the best available expertise in order to effectively carry out their oversight duties. And it's necessary to take action with some of those findings. And and I think really, if we, if we do that, that certainly would be uh, what I would consider the regulator would be interested to see. After all, the, you know, the objective of all of this is to protect retail, is to protect the investor. You know, that, this is the this is the point of this whole exercise is to ensure security, continuity, and any efforts that I see or in 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 enabling that, as I did for you know for our for our clients at Barclays, is a very rewarding experience to be able to do that. And so, am I right in thinking that let's say just because I'm a, a, an expert in portfolio management and, and even the oversight of portfolio managers, that doesn't make me especially an expert in performing due diligence on investment managers. So that actually, just because I can do that role in practice doesn't mean that I'm, I'm good at due diligence on it. So I, I, maybe there's a different skill set in being the, the person who leads a due diligence exercise. Yeah, I think, I think uh, that, that is true. You know, if you think of allocators in, in hedge funds, they've been now building teams, building experience, both making mistakes, both learning about how things can go wrong. You know, they've been doing that for 15 years and it does take that long to to build the, that level of expertise. It's not um, it's not like exactly like an audit where there's a you know a set of standards that's applied and you and you can simply follow them and you can take your qualifications and you can and you can execute on those standards. So it does take you know allocators and, and institutional investors have 15 years of building up experience. Indeed, people like myself to do to do this job. So I think it's a really big challenge for Manco. Certainly, where in the, in the instances where the you know the Manco is is an external Manco, is not part of the same same group as the investment manager. I think that's quite quite hard to very quickly turn on the the level of expertise that's needed to review both portfolio risk management, compliance risks, and other type of operational risks. It's a, it's a really it's a really big challenge I feel for Mancos and Athens. And where does an on-site visit feed into the due diligence process. I know certainly here there is a regulatory expectation, you know, as a default that an on-site visit would be done before appointment and probably annually thereafter. Now that may be tweaked depending on the circumstances, but as a baseline, that's kind of where you're you're expected to be. Is that is that what happens in practice? Is there that much value in an on-site? That's a really good question slightly different take on this in that my interpretation of regulators looking for on-site is basically saying really we want to be confident that you're really doing a proper job with your due diligence and probably going on-site and I use the word probably but let's go with that probably by going on-site you should be able to that, that should be able to demonstrate it you know you can say you went in on this date you met these people you, and all of that is really valuable to do and I, and I wouldn't wouldn't in any way dispute that. But going back to your earlier point, Danny, about the expertise uh, and experience of individuals, you know, if those individuals do not have the expertise and do not have the experience, they're going to find it very difficult when they go on site to be asked really sort of challenging questions. And indeed, it could have the opposite effect whereby, you know, you're sitting in front of a very experienced PM or a very experienced chief operating officer. And, you know, they're going to give you the best impression possible, no doubt about it. 
about it. So how do you know that what they're telling you is the truth? How do you know that what they're, when they explain their processes and systems, that they, that's actually what happens? And going on site isn't necessarily going to achieve that. I think it's a tool, and that's the way to look at it. It's a useful tool, but by, by far the, the best and most informative way of assessing, in my opinion, is assessing a, a, a hedge fund manager or a, or a usage manager or whatever it would be, is using a combination of tools. And the on-site may be one of them, but certainly verification by, for example, reviewing fund financial statements or reviewing ADV forms, for example, or Annex for any of these types of reports. And that's even before we touch on things like RTS 28 and other types of the best execution and other regulatory reporting document, documents. You know, there's quite a bit of time and quite a bit of work to be done in doing all of that. And that's, in my opinion, just as, val- in, as valuable as being on-site. And so then is the real value of an on-site, for example, for an experienced due diligence professional, is the real value then the the impression that it conveys or that it, it sends out a message to the delegate that you're reviewing, to your investors and, and also to your regulator, that you're serious about what you do, that's why we go on-site. Is it that impression that you create that's nearly more important than anything you might actually find out while you're on-site? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it is a little bit of that. I mean, I, as I say, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that it, it shouldn't be done or that it's not a great, it is not a great tool to use. You know, actually sitting in front of individuals, you know, so-called, so-called sort of um, seeing the whites of their eyes, as we used to, used to as the ODD community sort of talks about that, it's certainly a valuable thing to do. Yes, I think it does send a message, though, that we're looking to take this seriously. We're looking to understand you. We're looking to execute our uh, responsibilities and oversight of the delegate to the best of our abilities, and this is what we're going to do. But it, but I don't think it's the be all and end all. I don't think it by by performing an onsite you can then just satisfy yourselves as the ASIM or the Manco that you've successfully overseen the manager. And what I would call have what you know what I call operational conviction on the manager. There's a lot more to it than just the onsite. And I know, for example, when when a regulator would go onsite, it's an inspection versus this kind of um, due diligence approach. When they would do that, they would look to meet with the relevant individuals. They would probably outnumber them. They would, as you say, look into the whites of their eyes, ask them tough questions, not believe especially anything that they're told unless it's backed up by evidence and and try and give the interviewee a pretty tough time because that's what they're there for, challenge and constructive challenge. Is that kind of the approach that that should be taken then by somebody doing a due diligence onsite, that they're in that mindset. They're there to find out what they can find out, challenge, and see what see uh, where they can push the people that they're meeting, and, and really try and determine whether what they're being told is correct. Yes, I think the, answer, the short answer is, is yes. You've got to challenge what the manager is telling you. You know, we what we often do is a targeted approach. So we're not there to go on site and ask them how many people are in their organisation, what are what are their registrations, what service provider they're using. You know, to me that's not a good use of on-site time. If you're going to go on site, then what you do want to do is first of all prepare 
read through all the documentation, get as good as understanding as you can of the of the organisation, and then under, and then determine what specifically you're going to use the time to ask and to and to go into detail. We mentioned about business continuity plans. We mentioned about testing and so on. So you know, one question would not be to you know to describe your business continuity plan because I already have that right before I go on site. It's more actually straight into okay. So you mentioned that that there is a test on a quarterly basis. Can I actually see the results of that test? And can you just talk me through what you learned from that test? You know, that to me is a is a is a much better use of time. But it is also it's kind of challenging the manager, but not in a not in a kind of an aggressive. I want to see you demonstrating how you are mitigating your your operational risks. The second thing is is I would say that by using a a third party to go into to go on site or indeed co-source. So it may well be that what you know, and this is what I've done in the past, is go on site alongside the man co my my client, and we both go in. And and if anything, you know, uh, you can sort of offset the slight awkwardness of asking tough questions because you know I've got James here. You know, James. That's what James is here to do. Blame James. Necessarily, yeah, exactly. Good idea. <laughs> so unless, I'm, I'm more than happy to take that on my shoulders and do the job I need to do. And how do you see firms approaching a situation where they have multiple delegates uh, and obviously finite resources? How do they determine if they're expected to do on-sites, let's say, annually? How do they determine out of a list of 50 investment managers which of those they're going to visit this year? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough challenge. I mean, we obviously ourselves here are, are looking to to help to help them perform those tasks, both in terms of boots on the ground and actually doing the work, but also advisory on an advisory basis and designing first and foremost the monitoring program that should be in place. So my advice is to is to look at your population and in some way determine determine what you foresee as being high or medium or low risk of, of those delegates. And that could be on the basis of the how about how long the relationship has been with the with the delegate. For example, if you've recently taken them on and and you did and you performed a review, for example, using performed due diligence service to do it, you would be in a position to say, okay, well we we've got a very good understanding and we're impressed and, and they've they've got through the report. However, you may have another delegate that actually is maybe one that you've had on the books for you know a couple of years and you haven't had that same sort of rigor applied to that delegate that's then one that you probably want to put towards the towards the top of the list so I think using a number of sort of parameters around the the jurisdiction of the delegate the uh, I guess the operational resourcing and expertise of that delegate that you have that you understand that will help you prioritize which delegates that you should be seeing which that even you should be doing maybe just a desk based review versus an on-site something that we mentioned a little earlier yeah and that's that's what I see with uh, some of the, the management companies here that have a large you know or a fairly large portfolio of delegates to oversee that they will take a risk-based approach to determine 
determining who gets visited this year and who's next year and, and what kind of cycle they put firms on. And it is factors like if it's a newly appointed manager, well, maybe I do want to see them this year just to check in, particularly if depending on how the due diligence has gone. Obviously, it's gone quite well because you've gone as far as appointing them. But if there was something that was thrown up in that, that, for example, it was the first time they were going to manage a usage or something, you might want to check in. If it was a firm you had a relationship with for a period and you had visited them last year and things were going smoothly, maybe you, you put them on a different cycle. But I think that what I like about the risk-based approach is it, for me, it resonates a lot with how the regulator approaches their work and how they supervise firms. If you, you know, here we have the PRISM system, the probability risk and impact system is the, the supervisory tool used by the regulator. And it's risk-based. It's about how you deploy your resources by understanding the probability and risk of an impact of, of the firms that you're overseeing. So I think aligning and, and, and taking a risk-based approach is, is something that would resonate quite nicely with the regulator, I think. Yeah, and I think what can help with that, Danny, as well, is on the initial due diligence is to get a good understanding with the delegate at what, what points, what information will be passed through to the Manco with certain events happening. So, for example, you know, if there is a data integrity issue at the manager, you know, the Manco should, should ensure that they inform the delegate that that's something that they would want to know about. If there's a, a cybersecurity breach or if there's uh, you mentioned a change in product or perhaps there's a change at the sea level. You know, you can at, at the initial due diligence sort of help construct your own risk-based approach by saying to the manager, these are the sort of things that we would like to hear about. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a good example. Otherwise, you know, there's, there's no, you cannot guarantee or rely on the, the manager, as I've learned as an allocator. You can't always guarantee rely on the manager to pass you the information that you'd expect to be, be told about. And so to wrap up, uh, James, one last question. I guess that the performance of due diligence by appointers, in this instance, mancos, I suppose, or, or allocators, as you mentioned, um, is becoming more normal. I guess it's becoming more intrusive so that the recipient, the investment manager to be appointed or, or fund administrator or whatever, must be more, more used to dealing with these situations, more used to being in meetings where there's, for example, an expert like yourself, a third party who's there to give them a tough time. Uh, are you finding that? Are you finding that, for example, investment managers are, are more open, better prepared, less taken aback or, or less? caught out the tone and the nature of these engagements? Are you more welcomed in than you used to be? It varies. It depends. You would naturally think that with the, certainly with hedge funds, with the institutionalization and maturity of hedge funds, certainly the, the, the due diligence process is well-founded and well-established. But if you take private equity, real estate, those are the sorts of types of due diligence activities that those the GPs, managers, are just not really used to. I created a private equity due diligence exercise back in 2012 and I was one of the very first that implemented that and it was not implemented beforehand because it was a closed-ended, as you know, it's a seven-year lock-up, you can't get out so why perform operational due diligence sort of thing, that's for another podcast potentially, but there are different different expertise, um, different experiences depending on, on the sectors. I, I think the, the also the challenging aspect is now that the investment manager have got allocators who have been asking these questions for quite a period of time. If you've now got mancos and you've got anything that are doing that as well, that's potentially increasing hugely the amount of due diligence quest queries and questions and time taken to accommodate all those questions. And so I think that that's a big challenge for managers. And I, you know, we we are certainly supportive 
and through the exercises that we do is that you know having having third parties perform these due diligence exercises enables some form of aggregation or some form of help with the manager to perform good DDQs to to get the right answers ready for all these sort of types of questions, whether they're coming from allocators or for the mancos and the and the APIMs. Otherwise, it's going to be incredibly difficult for managers to find the time to to complete these exercises. Well, I guess if it's kind of bespoke and different each time, it must be very time consuming for managers. Uh, whereas the more it's standardised and at least the bulk of the information is there and is going to be the same, it, it must help with efficiencies and, and I guess make their job that bit easier, but make the process more effective because you're getting the you're getting the information more quickly and, and it's more accurate. Yeah, and I think you know while our approach has always been to ensure that wherever we see weaknesses, concerns, you know, can do better type type conclusion, then we certainly feed that back to the to the manager, to the delegate to make those changes, and that puts them in a much better shape for the next visit or for the next email that comes through and asks for for a whole whole bunch of information. So you know there are you know in the hedge fund field certainly there there's a lot of experience and managers are quite well equipped for this type of, of queries. I think on the more retail side, it, they're less geared up and, and, and really just rely more on the sort of the regulatory reporting um, requirements uh, as a means of satisfying um, due, diligence, due diligence inquiries. But, you know, with the what we've, happened, what we've seen in 2019 with a, with a number of large-scale, large, well-known managers in the retail uh, daily dealing funds that have had a, had a lot of problems and a lot of issues. I think that's going to change now. I think you, for going forward that there'll be a proliferation of due diligence queries going into those types of managers who would have once thought were needed any form of due diligence due to the regulatory status of the fund and the, the liquidity of the portfolios. I think that's now 2019 has shown you that you just can't rely on regulation alone to be able to give you the right results. And I've always been a believer that the investors are the ones that can, that can, that can ensure the standards are kept to a high level. And I think now the Mancos and the ASIMs as well have a role in that. They are now in, in a place, a place of privilege in, in some senses, to, to ensure that the investment managers particularly are doing exactly what the, the expectations are. And in turn, that provides a much better outcome result for clients. Yeah, and it's not a bad result for the regulator either, because I guess with mancos and, and investors, however, doing this level of due diligence, it's like a quasi inspection on behalf of the regulator. Somebody is there to to ask the questions and, and probe and, and find out, and so they should, because if something goes wrong, it will be the mancos head on the block in the first instance, more so than the than the investment manager necessarily. So it's it's in their interest to make sure everything is right and lined up. Thank you very much for that, James. Uh, that was very, very useful. I think that the, the best practices I discerned, and you can tell me if I've missed anything here, I got five. One, you need to keep your due diligence checklist alive. You need to be aware of experiences and peer experiences and recent developments so that you're, that you're always evolving and keeping up to pace with new issues and risks arising. Two, due diligence is a skill which either needs to be acquired in or, or transferred in or borrowed. That doing due diligence requires a certain skill set that, that you won't necessarily pick up just because you are a portfolio manager, for example. Three, that on-sites 
are a tool, but they're only a tool and part of the process of due diligence. They're useful in demonstrating the seriousness that the firm takes their, their obligations, but in and of themselves, they're not the panacea. They need to be married with very good verification processes. Four, be challenging when you do go on site and be targeted when you go on site. Have done your homework beforehand so that you're not trying to cover all the ground during the on site. You're being very specific about the areas that you want to find out more about and be quite specific on those with your with your visit uh, and, and challenging on what you're hearing from your interviewees. And then finally, I think take a risk-based approach to your on-sites or to your ongoing due diligence. Understand where you are best to deploy your resources, where you're seeing issues or risks, uh, having them at the top of the list uh, and prioritizing them over over others if uh, if that's what your resources demand. Have I got them all there, James? Have I missed anything? I don't think you have. That's very well summarized. Thank Great. You. Well, thanks very much for your time, James. Very much appreciate getting the insight of an expert in this area on the, the best practices for performance of due diligence. Uh, and again, thank you very much for co-hosting, James. Thanks, Danny. Well, Quest podcast listeners, there you have it. The five best practices when it comes to performing due diligence on fund man code delegates, especially investment management. Managers. Take those notes, keep them safely, and when we do finally return to office work, bring them with you to your next team meeting and show how productive you've used your work from home time. Let on that these thoughts are your own. As you say, gosh, I think we should do something about how we do our on-site due diligence. If you are looking for other ways to use your time at home very well, I'm delighted to say a quest can help. We've just launched our online Funds Masterclass product, which is available through a quest.ie series of tutorials delivered live every month, plus a library of 101 series and in focus series to help you up the learning curve together with our bespoke and exclusive Quest linked rulebooks. Find out more through a quest.ie. And in the next two weeks, we'll be launching our FNP Masterclass digital product. So if you fancy becoming a master of fitness and probity, check it out. We've got tons of great content, lessons on the rules, template policy for fitness and probity. We even have mock interviews with the central bank videos so you can see what it might be like if you have the dubious pleasure of being called into interview by the central bank. Again, check out equest.ie. The FMP masterclass will be available in about two weeks time. In the meantime, keep safe and we'll catch you next time on the Equest podcast. You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.